Welcome, greetings and salutations in the name of our Lord. Um, welcome to another episode of Coffee, the Bible and Page. Today we're going to do First Thessalonians chapter 3. It's a short chapter, so we probably won't stay the full 30 minutes here, but it's an important chapter nonetheless. Um, to bring us up to speed, Paul went to Thessalonica, stayed for a time. People were converted under his ministry. Uh, the local Jews got a crowd of thugs from the marketplace and, in essence, drove Paul out of town. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and, of course, Luke, who's Paul's companion. And they went to Berea, and then uh, they did the same thing in Berea, and the same people from Thessalonica followed them to Berea and drove them out of there. And Paul and everybody left and went south to Athens. And that's kind of where we're picking up our story today. All right, let's take a look at it. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 3. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. In other words, Luke and Paul, that's the we. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens, Luke and Paul. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. So Timothy goes back home so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. Now here's a map. We've seen this map before. You see Athens down here in the south end here, down in the south. That's where Paul's at right now. You see Berea, you see Thessalonica. From Athens to Thessalonica is approximately 300 miles. So, oh, well, hello then, Henry. Good to see you, my friend. It's approximately 300 miles from Athens to Thessalonica. So they all arrive down here in Athens, and he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica, 300 miles. I'm not sure how long it would take to walk 300 miles. Um, I don't know if they went by ship or if, you know, along the coast or if Timothy would have walked. I imagine he would have walked. The roads were good back then. Um, if you averaged, let's see, 20 miles in a day, um, it'd be a 10-day trip, maybe figure three-week round trip. Hmm. No, three weeks to get there, a 10-day trip up. I'm not sure. Gosh, maybe about a three-week round trip. So Paul's in Athens, and he sends Silas up to Philippi. Let's take a look at this. A comparison of the movements of Paul and his co-workers described in First Thessalonians 3 with the account in Acts, suggested the following sequence of events took place. Paul arrives in Athens. He left Silas and Timothy behind in Berea with instructions to rejoin him as soon as possible. His two co-workers returned to him in Athens. Paul sends Timothy back to Thessalonica in order to encourage the church that was being persecuted. And Paul was really wondering if the Thessalonican church is all right because apparently the level of persecution there was pretty intense. Paul sends Silas somewhere else in Macedonia, probably to the Philippian church, for which he received financial gifts to support the apostle. In Philippians, we find that there were actually there were probably two instances of receiving financial support uh, from that church. Uh, Silas and Timothy returned to Paul, who by this time has left Athens to begin an 18-month ministry in Corinth. So while they were on their journey, Paul continued from Athens on to Corinth. 
And he's in Corinth when Timothy and Silas catch back up to him. And that's where Paul is when he's writing uh, this letter to the uh, Thessalonican church. Timothy gives an essentially good report about the church, but also informs Paul of several concerns, which is the prompt that Paul needed to write this letter. All right, so that's where we're at. Verse 4. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent out to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. All right, some good thoughts here from the commentary from uh, Bible Gateway. The unbelieving citizens of Thessalonica not only attacked the integrity of Paul with respect to his past visit to the city, but apparently also used the apostles' inability thus far to come back to the fledgling church to cast further doubts about the genuineness of his motives. In other words, they're really trying hard to put Paul into the role of one of these professional orators who just come to town, make fancy speeches, collect your money, and run. They really wanted Paul. They tried to paint Paul in that picture. Um, one key concern of Paul in this section of the letter, therefore, is to reassure the Thessalonian Christians of his continued love and concern for them, despite his present failure to return for a second visit. You know, I don't know if Paul ever made it back for a second visit. But he goes on to write, But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day, we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. All right. It's a short little chapter, but with this, he ends his uh, defense of his ministry in Thessalonica. He's going to shift gears and go into teaching mode here pretty quick, in the, starting with chapter 4. But there's a couple other things that we need to consider going on here to help you understand the humanity of the situation. Paul had been in Athens, right? He had gone from uh, Thessalonica to Berea, where he got chased out of Berea, and he went to Athens. And, and while he was in Athens, he sent Timothy and Silas back. Silas goes to Philippi, gets... Uh, you know, gets the financial support. Um, Timothy goes back to Thessalonica to make sure everything's okay. While Paul is in Athens, we read uh, in a previous uh, passage in Acts where he had a debate with the um, philosophers of the day in Athens. They had, you know, Athens had a lot of gods and he found that altar to the unknown God and he explained to them the unknown God and it's probably one of the most brilliant presentations 
of the gospel into a totally unbelieving audience who probably had next to no knowledge of Jewish theology, Jewish philosophy, and Paul being a very he, Paul is brilliant. I think Paul is probably the most brilliant mind the Christian church has ever produced. And he gives this incredible presentation. And many of those people there mocked him, sneered at him, looked down on him. When you sneer at somebody, you're not just laughing at something that's funny. You're laughing down to them. You're considering them to be less than. And when we're going to find out when we go to 1 Corinthians later on. Paul reminds him, he says, do you remember when I came to you with fear and trembling? What would cause Paul to come in fear and trembling? Well, first of all, perhaps the uh, virulence and the violence of the persecution from Thessalonica and Berea. That would cause fear. But what else could have caused Paul to have to say something like, I have vowed to preach nothing but Christ crucified. What would cause Paul to doubt himself? And I'm thinking to myself, you know, when he presented his most brilliant case to the greatest minds in Athens and they sneered at him, that had to be a hard pill to swallow. Paul wasn't one that was used to being sneered at by his intellectual peers. Now, he's used to being persecuted, all right, by uh, the people who, who hated Jesus. But to have his ideas sneered at, that's hard to take. It would be on a, on a level of, all right, I'm a pretty good musician. I, I'm not saying I'm great, but I'm pretty good. And... If I presented the best music that I could possibly make, and it was the best music I could ever possibly make, and then to have my musical peers laugh at me as if what I was doing was infantile, that would be tough to take. And it was after that kind of experience that Paul tells the Corinthians, I came to you in fear and in trembling. I don't know if his confidence was shaken, or maybe his confidence in his ability to debate was shaken. But it was that was a tough thing for Paul to go through. And it's in the midst of that emotional upheaval. All right, now, again, I'm imagining this, but he writes this letter to, to the Thessalonians. Have you ever been bummed about something? To the point where you just figure, like, you know, everything must be bad because this thing is so bad. And it's easy to imagine the worst when you're depressed. Um, I could see Paul recovering from the persecution of Berea, Thessalonica, and now being laughed at by the, his intellectual peers in Athens. Something like that could make a person question whether what he was doing was right. And I kind of get that feeling in this first part of First Thessalonians. He's afraid that what he had done in Thessalonica had amounted to nothing. What if he really hadn't done a good job? What if, you could just see, you could come up with all these what-if scenarios. And so this whole first three chapters is really 
him wondering, is what I did in Thessalonica, was it of any lasting value? Years ago, uh, my wife and I were married. We had our children. As our children grew and then they moved out of the house, I had this thing in the back of my head that uh, I had really screwed things up. Um, I had been away from home a lot, Navy, but even when I was home, I was an absentee father because I was always hustling. You know, I always had something in the wind to do, some big project, some big thing. And it all came to a head when I was laid off from a job and I opened up a video production company with a friend and it totally bombed. I ended up going into uh, bankruptcy. I lost everything except a car and a house. And I began to question my whole life based on that series of current events. And it took God a long time to convince me that my life was not a waste. And now I look I look at my children and they're they're both adults. They both you know there's there's grandchildren now and they're both doing so well. My grandchildren are being raised in good Christian household. It's hard for me to imagine ever feeling like I had been a failure as a father. But sometimes current events can make you can color everything behind you and make you think that you're a total complete screw up and that everything you did doesn't measure up. I kind of get the feeling that's what's happening here with Paul. I can't say for sure. But you know, one of my greatest study Bible study helps, and I've said this before, is my human experience. I have to be careful that I don't try to make the Bible say what I want it to say, but when I'm looking behind the scenes, I first of all realize that mankind hasn't changed one iota from Adam to now. And we could use our own life experiences as some kind of a barometer when we read about somebody else having the same kind of life experience. And though I didn't, I haven't planted churches and I haven't traveled around like Paul planting churches and preaching and teaching, I have traveled around and I have thrown myself into ventures. I have failed spectacularly and I have faced trials and tribulations and I know what they make you feel like when you fail. And I can't help but wonder if Paul thought he had failed the Thessalonians. And so the whole first three chapters is him just really coming to grips with dealing with that, wondering, was my time at Thessalonica a bust? Was it worth it? Are they still hanging in there? Did I fail them? Timothy answers his questions. No, you did not. Paul had just come out of his experience with his intellectual peers staring at him in Athens. And sometimes I wonder if perhaps Paul questioned his mental acuity, his ability to defend what he held so dear in light of that experience. And so he comes to Corinth saying, do you remember when I came to you in fear and trembling? 
I've just been chased out of Thessalonica and Berea. I've been laughed at by the people in Athens. <sighs> Do you remember when I came to you in fear and trembling? So I kind of get that sense that that's what Paul's wrestling with here. Timothy brings him good news. And Silas brings him good news because the church of Philippi is doing well. And Thessalonica and Berea, they're doing fine, Paul. You did a good job. But isn't this just like the enemy of our souls? Do you remember, uh, I had I, I, this occurred to me one time when I was going through my bankruptcy and dealing with all of that. Um, the Lord brought to me, brought to my remembrance the story of David and the story of Job. Trust me, this all bears, this all uh, hooks up here. David fell in love with Bathsheba, who is another man's wife. He set it up so that Bathsheba's husband would be killed, leaving her free to remarry, which he did. He remarried her, and they had a child. Now, she had, she was pregnant with David's child before her husband was killed. She had, her husband's killed, David and Bathsheba marry. God sends Nathan the prophet who in essence tells him that uh, as a price for his sin, God is going to take the child. And of course, God does take the child and David repents. Uh, and then there's another story where Job, righteous man, Satan comes before God and says, sure, he's doing great. You protect him. Tell you what, you let me play with Job for a while and I'll have him cursing your name. God says, okay, you can do what you want. You can't touch his life. So Satan starts to mess with Job. Now, Job has no clue what's going on. Children die, family dies, loses everything, loses his health, loses his possessions, and his friends tell him to curse God and die. It, you know, it just, it's just... And Job has no idea what's going on because that's the way the enemy of our soul works. He brings darkness. He brings confusion. And you don't know which end is up. Now, when God brings trials into your life, at least, and this and this has been true in my life as well, when God brought, allowed what happened to David to happen to David, David knew what was coming. The prophet told him, your child is going to die. This is your sin. You disobeyed God. You've disgraced him. This is the price. God let David know what the problem was, what the price would be, and God delivered on that price. When Satan messed with Job, Job had no idea what was going on. He was confused. He didn't know why all this stuff could possibly be happening to him because the enemy brings darkness and confusion. When I was going through my bankruptcy, there's a lot of prayer involved. Uh, I used to have people come up to me say, we're praying for you. That the enemy quits messing with you. We're praying against the enemy. I finally had to stop on them and say, don't pray against the enemy. They said, what? I said, it's not the enemy's fault. This one's on me. God had revealed to me that my sin with money, foolishness with money, had to be dealt with. I knew what the problem was. I knew what the solution was going to be. 
And I knew what was going to happen by the end of it. God had told me, he says, you're dying to the sin of foolishness with money. When I'm done with you in this process, you're going to feel about money the way I do. So I had a clear vision of what the problem was, what the solution was, and how the end of it would be. Job did not have any of that. He was confused because the source of the problem was the enemy. Paul was attacked by the enemy. In fact, throughout this first couple, three chapters, he continually asserts Satan's role in all of this. Satan does not bring clarity of vision. Satan does not bring a clear idea. Satan just attacks. Satan surrounds you with darkness. Satan surrounds you with confusion. Not clarity. Not definition. And Paul had been chased out of Thessalonica uh, thugs. Now, these aren't nice people. The thugs in Thessalonica are not nice people. They're gangsters. They're street, ugly, street smart criminals. And they chased them out of Thessalonica. They chased them out of Berea. So Paul's running to escape. And he doesn't know what's going on back in Thessalonica. He's confused. There's darkness. He hasn't got any news. So he sends Timothy back and Timothy finally brings him news. And poof, the clouds dissipate. Paul knows his time was not wasted. That God indeed, that God indeed was in his work at Thessalonica. And though Paul had little to no success in Athens, as he was in Corinth, I think Paul was given a reality check. And I'm not saying that he was horribly deficient. He wasn't. Paul's a strong man. And he was a determined man. And he was a brilliant man. But sometimes we need to be body checked. To use an old hockey term. To put us back in the right place. And I kind of get the feeling that's what happened at Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. Now Paul's in Corinth. And he's writing back to Thessalonica. And he's grateful. Now, that's it for today. Tomorrow, we're going to be starting the second half of this book, this letter, and he's going to go into teaching mode because he wants to he wants to finish up something that he started that he wasn't able to finish. All right. Here's my coffee. This is Mr. G. I'm out of here. Bye-bye.